the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. To help us better understand what's happening in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians, my guest today for the second week in a row is Joseph Benemy, former director of government relations and diplomatic affairs for the Jewish advocacy group B'nai B'rith. Joseph has many positions, one of which is a former policy aide to the former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, so he has a good perspective on international affairs to say the least. So welcome back to the show, Joseph. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you. So, you know, one of the things that I don't understand is, can you tell me, why do you think anti-Semitism has been common? And and I understand it has been common throughout history. I mean, I get the impression, quite frankly, when you look at the Nobel Prizes earned by Jewish people, is that it's partly because of envy due to the high level of achievement of Jews. Do you think that's part of the reasons that we've seen anti-Semitism? Well, this is a, a, a very deep question, and one can only speculate. So anything that I would say, bear that in mind. It's 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 pure speculation and purely my opinion. Sure. It's really hard to say. I, I don't know that it's envy. I don't know of anyone that really thinks that way. And and I, I it's hard for me to sort of put that together wrap my mind around that as, as a reason. I'll tell you what my personal theory is. My personal theory is that it's it's not envy, but it's it, there is an element of, see, you're just like the rest of us. In other words, you, you know, the, the term canary in the mind, uh, we've heard many people say over the years, you know, Jews are just the canary in the mind. And of course, for your listeners, Tom, the canary in the mine, of course, is the idea that they used to take a canary in a cage in a mine, and if there were any undetectable gases in the mine, the canary would be the first to keel over and die, uh, and that would be an indication that the men in the mine had to get out because uh, they were also being overcome by this gas that may not have even known was present because it was odorless and colorless. So the idea of the Jews being the canary in the mine is that when things are going awry and there's widespread discrimination or tyranny emerging, that Jews often are the first victim. If you look at historically, I I suppose you could make that case, but I really think it comes down to this. I think that Jews are not the canary in the mine. I think that Jews are the conscience of the world. And for whatever reason, there's been a lot of anti-Semitism directed at Jews. And I use the term anti-Semitism somewhat reservedly because in reality, that's a a relatively new term. It's it's less than 200 years old. And the term anti-Semitism was coined by a fellow in Germany, uh, Mar, I can't remember his first name, Wilhelm, I think it was, uh, who himself was an anti-Semite. But the problem was that more and more Jews were abandoning their religion and their religious practice. So the question now became, if you can't hold it against them for religious reasons, because historically middle-aged anti-Semitism was 
against you were against Jews if they continued to be Jews, but if they converted to Christianity, they were welcomed into the Christian community. But what did you do when Jews continued to identify as Jews, but they weren't religious? So this Mark character came up, he coined the term anti-Semitism to describe discrimination or hatred of Jews uh, almost on the basis of their DNA, that they were genetically Jews, not just religiously Jews. And therefore, you couldn't not be Jewish, even if you converted to Christianity. And of course, oh. this was a major development at that time that the, the Nazis in Germany, of course, latched onto eventually um, uh, the idea that, well, you were Jewish and subject to anti-Jewish laws, even if you had converted to Christianity. Of course, they, they had a, it wasn't an on and on and on thing. They had, I think it was up to your grandparents or whatever. If your grandparents were, were not practicing Jews or they were Christians, then then that was that was fine. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's why so it was a little bit of a digression, but that's why I, I, I mention it. Uh, I use the term anti-Semitism in its colloquial sense, not in its actual, real, technical sense. When I say that Jews, I think, and this is my own opinion, are the conscience of the world, anti-Semitism has been around for a very long time. And particularly today, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, where all of a sudden it just wasn't right to be anti-Semitic. It, it was just bad manners. Yeah, um, I'd say so. <laughs> okay. But... Still, there's always that collective consciousness. There's always that, you know, did we do enough? How could mankind do such a thing to a segment of its own species? Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's in, in terms that are very difficult to comprehend even to this day. And when people think of the Holocaust, they, they don't, still to this day, they don't, I think most people don't really appreciate what it consisted of. It wasn't just the fact that, six million Jews died because many more people died during those years than Jews. It was the manner of the death. It was the industrialization of it. It was mm -hmm. the, the fact that if you were a subhuman, not quite human, that Jews were not quite human. They weren't actually fully human. So you could do to them what was done. So there were many aspects to the Holocaust. And I think that people collectively still feel a certain amount of guilt over that, perhaps unexpressed, but it's latent, it's there. So there's a certain amount of, see, you're just as bad as we are. Mm -hmm. When it comes to anything today that might indicate to people that yeah, maybe Jews, you know, maybe they aren't always the victims. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, I think that this, again, just my theory but I think that that's maybe a better explanation. And I think you see it in the language that people use when they're criticizing the actions of the state of Israel. They talk about oh, the Holocaust of the Palestinians. Well, there's no such thing as a Holocaust of the Palestinians. There's yeah. no such thing as a genocide. They talk about Gaza being an open-air concentration camp. The terminology that's used in criticizing the Jews and criticizing Israel and not just with respect to the Palestinians, but when you criticize Israel and you criticize Jews, quite often what you're hearing is you're hearing exactly the same language that applies to what the Jews went through 75 and 80 years ago, or even mm. prior prior to that. Yeah. So 
hard to understand, but maybe there's something to it. And again, that's just my theory. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. If you have a subgroup in your population who are very successful, for people that aren't successful, it's kind of an invitation to somehow lump them together and, and say, well, you're right. They're subhuman, that sort of thing. So I still think it's a bit of envy. I really do. Well, I mean, you look at the Einsteins and the other scientists that have won Nobel Prizes. And, you know, I think that it's it's just easy to attack people who are very successful. I suppose so. But, you know, something that and I've gotten it more recently than in past years, but, you know, people saying that, you know, there's so many Jews in Hollywood. Mm. Jews control Hollywood. And I go, well, actually, there, because there is a disproportionate representative representation of Jews in Hollywood. But the majority of people who are in Hollywood are not Jews. Yeah. The same thing in the banking industry, the same thing in politics. But there is a higher proportion. And that's because Jews, from a cultural point of view, have always been much more focused on education and uh, active, being active in society, etc., to the degree that they've been allowed to be active in society, but certainly certainly on an education side. So you, you have a higher proportion of Jews represented in universities these days, not so much 100 years ago when they still had quotas, but these days, higher proportion of Jews in professions. There are reasons for these things. Mm -hmm. But what you never hear is you never hear anyone going, Oh, those clever, sly Chinese or Orientals, even <laughs> though there's a higher percentage proportion of people from Asia, uh, Chinese, let's say, that are represented in our universities. So go figure. It's Is it envy? Maybe there's an element of that. But the mm -hmm. thing is like this is, is ultimately it comes down to just being, if I could just make, make it as blunt as I can, stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I I get the impression when I see a lot of the immigrants out protesting, not just in favor of the Palestinians, but in favor of Hamas. You know, I get the impression that what's happened in Canada is that there was a lot of anti-Semitism among these immigrants coming from the Middle East. And that for some reason or other, they feel now is a time that they can show it. It was always there, but it was hidden. And that now they seem to have a license to wow. say these things. Do you think that's what's going on? Well, maybe hidden from you. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 like, I, I, I like to say, welcome to my world. Uh, there's, oh, yeah. nothing new, there's nothing new and nothing surprising here. And this is a very big dilemma, actually, for us in, in the West and in countries like Canada. First of all, let me say this. I'm at the risk of getting into some trouble with some of my friends in the conservative <laughs> community, and why wouldn't I? That's sort of the norm for me, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, And amongst some of my co-religionists, I actually have a, a, in a sort of twisted way, a little bit of sympathy and understanding for why these people are saying what they say. And let me explain that, okay? It's not that I think that they're right or I agree with them or that I'm thinking, okay, the Israelis are just doing a terrible job and they, what do you expect, okay? Maybe they're going overboard. Maybe, I mean, the protesters are going overboard, but as the Secretary General of the United Nations said, it's not happening in a vacuum, okay? I think that's all ridiculous. My point is this. If it's not happening in a vacuum, the lack of vacuum comes from 
the fact that today when people come to a country like Canada, it's not like when my parents came to Canada. My father came to Canada in 1952, didn't speak a word of English, didn't have much money in his pocket, just the clothes on his back. He had no choice but to assimilate. Right. Sure, he could speak the, his native language within his own community, but to get a job, to participate in the culture, to uh, read newspapers, eventually to watch television as television became more and more prevalent, you had to speak English or French. You had to be part of the culture. You had to assimilate. Today, we don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Even for, set aside the multicultural aspect or policy of the government, which I think is a, a, a terribly destructive thing to do for any country. We can get mm -hmm. into that in a few minutes. If you yeah, know. exactly. I've been feeling but, that way too. But, but uh, you bring in today when somebody, let's take Syria, for instance, or Iran. When you move from Iran to Canada, you used to be moving from one country and culture to another. But today you can bring your whole culture with you. And not just because the government here in Canada is in favor of multiculturalism, but because the, the, the pressures, the natural pressures that used to induce assimilation don't necessarily exist anymore. Yes, mm -hmm. you can live in your little communal ghetto. That's not new. But what is new is I can watch TV from Iran. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do that 60 or 70 years ago. I can read all of my newspapers from Iran, not just my local native language newspapers, mother tongue newspapers, but the newspapers are actually published in Iran. I can get my news and everything from social media from Iran. The point is this, you don't actually move mm -hmm. to another country. So what does this have to do with what you're seeing on the streets? Well, this is something that people don't appreciate, okay? The news that these people are getting from Al Jazeera in Arabic alleges that there's a genocide going on. And, and, and then you get the social media that's just supporting it. And then you get the useful idiots in our society that are sort of going along with it a little bit. And you, what you do is you create a sense of thing where they act, a, a, a movement where they actually believe what they're saying. It's not mm -hmm. that they hate Jews because they're Jews. And there, there is an element of that, okay? But what you're, I think what you're really seeing uh, with these marches right now is not Jew hatred that's latent and baked into the religion or anything, or the culture. But what you're really seeing is a manifestation of, of, of frustration and anger with Israel for what they truly believe, these Muslims truly believe is happening, because that's what they're being told. It's a, a fascinating example of the power of mass media. And when you get compartmentalized, okay, and you're only getting that story, you believe it. So these people believe that there's a genocide going on. Mm -hmm. And, and it's so, interesting because they're they're not the only ones, of course, that are propagandized. I mean, we see people who were born and brought up in Canada propagandized on all kinds of topics. Sure. So again, in a sort of a twisted way, I'm thinking to myself, well, of, of course they're protesting on the streets. We can only imagine 
what would history would have looked like 75 or 80 years ago if you'd had these kinds of mass protests against Nazis and what they were doing with the Jews. Mm -hmm. But of mm -hmm. course, we didn't. So, so this is a, it's it, in in a way, I, and I, this is why I'm always I'm, I want to be careful here because again, I'm not justifying, I'm not explaining or anything like that. Uh, what what's happening is wrong, but it's it's an it's a manifestation of the indoctrination that they are subjected to, not so much because of religion and culture. That's a factor for sure. It's a, an important factor. But they come to the streets and they protest because they truly believe that the Israelis are, are just indiscriminately murdering Muslims and Arabs in that part of the world. Yeah. And why yeah, wouldn't they? That's what they get in the news. Yeah. And, you know, we see a similar thing happening in the global warming debate. I think most of the exactly. young people, most of the young people who are out protesting about global warming, they really do believe it's a crisis. You know, and, sure. and they're not trying to destroy capitalism per se, but they really think that we are in the midst of a climate crisis. And you just start asking them a few basic questions and you realize they they're totally propagandized. Yeah, they, they don't they don't know. They don't know the science and, and they don't have the basic tools in order to interpret what they're hearing. OK, mm -hmm. you know, for, for example, and you and I have talked about this before. I'm not. I'm not a, a scientist. My background, my professional background, I have some technical professional background, but I understand some of the basic physics that lead me to be a skeptic. It's not skepticism in a vacuum. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm skeptical because I hear people say, well, carbon dioxide. And I go, <laughs> okay, um, explain to me the chemistry of that. Explain to me the physics of that. Uh, I'm open-minded, but I also understand that carbon dioxide is not poisonous yeah. it's not there's a it's a crisis in education you know what we have tom in our society today on so many files on so many policy in so many policy areas is a crisis in in education a crisis in information or lack of information on top of all of that everything is political everything today is political when politics shouldn't be entering into so many things. And by that, I mean, there are so many things that government has its fingers in that it feels it has to manipulate, it has to guide, it has to regulate and manage that you, you can't escape it. So Wait, what we have is a kind of like a perfect storm. If I have any kind of, of fear or concern, it's for the immediate future of our society, of Western society. Remember, there's no reason why Western society cannot fall. Mm. There's, why, why would we think, you know, Francis Fukuyama coined the phrase, right, the end of history. Why? On its face, that doesn't make sense. There's no such thing as the end of history. History goes on and on and on. Why? It's, it, there's an element of, of unjustified arrogance in the notion that because we happen to be the most prosperous or the freest society that ever has been in human history, that somehow or other this, that this is going to continue. And in fact, there are real problems 
that are inherent in our society as a consequence of those freedoms and those and that prosperity that mm-hmm. nobody would have considered a hundred years ago. But today we're seeing it, but we're yeah. still arrogant about it. We still talk about, you know, freedom, freedom. Of course I believe in freedom. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and and this is a little controversial, but I have, you know, Arabic friends, a friend, very close friend who's a PhD. He's actually a Muslim, very bright guy. But one of the things that I wonder is, have we been too permissive in allowing them to keep their culture and practice their culture when it really violates our culture? And I'll give you an example. One of my sisters was trying to rent the basement of a mosque for her brownies. She called them up and they said, sure, you know, we'll have a meeting and we'll sign a contract, but make sure you send a man. And she thought, what? You know, there's no men in the girl guides. So she went on her own anyway. And they were quite rude to her, actually. And, you know, they didn't like that fact at all. And before they signed the contract, she stood up and said, you know, this wouldn't be a good environment for my girls. So I don't think I'll come here. And she left. And so she wrote to the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, who at the time was Sheila Copps, and she asked, is there any effort made to Canadianize people who come from parts of the world who have radically different standards, in particular with regards to women? Because, you know, I mean, they they say they treat women equally, but I don't see that personally. But regardless, Sheila Copps answered back, and then they eventually sent her a newcomer's guide to Canada. It was really good, actually. You could take somebody from a mud hut in the middle of Africa and bring them over here, and it taught them the basics of our society. But they said there was no obligation for the immigrant to ever read it. There was no test. There was no you know discussion later, et cetera, because that was some, somehow an infringement of their privacy or something. I don't know what it was. So right. I just wonder, are we giving away our citizenship allowing people into Canada who do not share our standards, don't, do not want to share our standards. And is that causing a really serious trouble? I guess what I'm asking is, does multiculturalism really work when the cultures are so different in basic things like respect towards women? Yeah. I don't believe in multiculturalism. I, I, I have no problem with multi-ethnicism, if you want to use that term. Okay, I have no problem with a multi-ethnic society. Yeah. But I have a serious problem with the idea of multiculturalism. A country, a nation comes into being, it, it's it's more than just a polity, it's more than just the land, it's the people and it's the values that the people adhere to, by and large. And a, a country, a, a society cannot survive if it becomes fragmented as the consequence of bringing in and allowing to grow cultures that uh, espouse values that are fundamentally different than ours. I'm not even going to get into superior culture versus inferior culture and that. We can all have our opinions on that. I know I have my opinions, but irrespective of that, Canada is a Christian country. It was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, primarily Christian manifestation. And speaking as a Jew, I think the fact that Canada is and was a Christian country in society was on balance a good thing. Now, you want to bring in people from around the world 
who don't want to participate in Canada as a Christian culture, there are going to be consequences of that. Mm -hmm. I, I was speaking with my wife recently. We were talking about this. We were talking about it in the context of language. And, you know, it was sort of like she was sort of half joking, sort of saying, uh, are we going to, are we all going to become Muslim? Is, is, is Canada going to be a Muslim country in uh, in a hundred years? And I said to her, I said, well, I'm not predicting that Canada is going to be a Muslim country in a hundred years. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I will say this. Once upon a time, nobody in Canada spoke English. To be even more controversial, once upon a time, everybody in Canada, other than the people of First Nations, spoke French. Canada, prior to Confederation anyway, was French. It wasn't English. Mm -hmm. um, New and, France. And so the point I'm making is that nobody sat down and planned, how are we going to have English become the dominant language in Canada? It just happened. And it happened because people spoke English. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to bring in a million... It, Canada is one of the great underpopulated countries in the world. Okay, second largest landmass with a very small population. We've only just reached 40 million people. It may sound to some people like a lot, but in a country the size of Canada, that's it's not. So how long do you think it would take? And again, I'm, I'm not predicting that Canada's become Muslim. I, and I'm not going to be around to see it happen one way or the other, okay? So mm -hmm. I don't actually have a dog in the hunt. But why wouldn't Canada become a Muslim country? I want to talk about a solution to the problem, and I have an idea. I'll present it after the break, okay? My guest today has been Joseph Benemy, former Director of Government Relations and Diplomatic Affairs for the Jewish advocacy group, B'nai B'rith. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code 
out loud. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global Healing giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. My guest today is Joseph Benemy, former director of government relations and diplomatic affairs for the Jewish advocacy group B'nai B'rith. He was also a former naval officer and he was policy aide to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. So, Joseph, I have a little bit of a possible solution to this. I think that if you have certain values in a country that maybe have taken generations to actually evolve, and one of them, of course, is equal rights for women, you know, the the right to vote and have jobs and everything else and, and you know, be respected as equal members of society. I think that you what you really want to do is you want to protect some of those rights. <clears throat> and I would suggest that essentially when you bring people in from other cultures who don't have those same belief systems that you have to Canadianize them. So it's not just taking people in from willy-nilly from anywhere. You know, it's funny because I mean, if you think about it, Joseph, we used to bring in immigrants who would fit in, people from Scandinavia or Germany or Italy, places where we knew they would actually you know, coordinate and work well in our society. Now we seem to do the exact opposite. We bring in people from Somalia and all sorts of places 
who, and I'm not against Somalians for sure, but they definitely have a different culture in many important ways. So what do you think? Is this even remotely practical? Could this be done, what I'm about to suggest? And again, I'm not being racist. I might be being slightly culturalist, believing that respect for women is important because that's part of my culture. And of course, with two daughters and three sisters, uh, I'd better <laughs> I'd better treat women properly or I'd be in real trouble. But regardless, do you think there should be some sort of training, some sort of classes that are mandatory for people that come from what we identify as radically different cultures as to what is acceptable in our country, in the new country they just arrived at. I hear where you're going with this. I think that it would be probably we should be doing it, but I, I don't think that it will necessarily have the impact that you hope that it would uh, because of the numbers of people we're bringing in. Uh, look, you cannot bring in people who don't share your values. At one point in time, it used to be understood that you came to Canada to escape the culture that you were in because you preferred Canadian culture. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so there was no need to re-educate anyone. And I'll even go further. You mentioned people coming in from, let's say, Northern Europe who already had a, a sort of a cultural affinity. Well, my father came from Europe. And uh, and and guess what? In, in the early 1950s, he still had to prove that he was not a communist sympathizer. Oh, is that right? Okay. If he had been a member of the Communist Party and wherever he was, or a communist activist, they wouldn't have let him into the country. Uh-huh. Because, because they understood that bringing in people like uh, with a, a particular mindset who are going to undermine the culture and the political system, etc. So you have to be able to defend and protect the culture. And, and and I, this is a such an important debate to have, and and it's we're doing ourselves such a terrible disservice by preventing this debate from going forward on mm -hmm. so many levels. Let's just forget we're talking about culture. Let's set aside culture and ideology for a second, and just ask yourself this: in the current economic environment where we have a housing affordability problem, does it make sense for us to bring in a half a million people from outside of the country when we don't have housing for them? And remember, mm -hmm. that's that's the target, a half a million, and that's that's the, um, the landed immigrant target. In addition to that are refugees. Now, refugees... We don't take in a whole lot of refugees, to be honest, okay? it's We take in refugees, but the maximum that I've ever seen was somewhere in the 50,000 range in one year. We don't take in a lot of refugees relative to how many we bring in as landed immigrants, but it is an extra number. And then you have temporary foreign workers, and then you have foreign students. So we're even with a target of, 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 a, of half a million people, we're bringing into this country more than a million people a year. Mm -hmm. And our population, as I've already said, is is only just reached 40 million. 
So what do we do with people? We don't. There's never been coordination on on infrastructure development, on housing, on any of these things. So naturally, if you have a demand, a high demand for housing and a a low supply, then then the prices are going to go up. And of course, Mm -hmm. then you get governments saying, well, we're going to find ways to control pricing. And I go, okay, yeah. You know what? That didn't work in the Soviet Union, and it's not going to work here. Um, the 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 what's the correct price for any product? The correct price for any product is what people are willing to pay, right? Or can pay. That's it. There's no magic formula, but we pretend, okay? And it's, we live in a fantasy. So this idea of of immigration, it's it's not just a question of uh, of culture or language. And there are just numbers. Practical, there are real practical implications, and 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 we're not dealing with it, and we're not allowed to deal with it because it's, you know, we get into microaggressions and stuff like that, and and I'm going, it's madness, mm-hmm. it's madness, and it's you know, I just I I, I get tongue tied, I'm, I'm tongue tied over it because it's, it's so just, stupid, just, it's hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, it's how is it possible? Tom, is it possible that we are just that dense? <laughs> I think our leaders Apparently are. I get so. the impression. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I kind of subscribe to Plato's idea that you have to be qualified to be a leader. You actually have to know something. And I don't know how you'd actually enforce that. But you remember Plato had the gold, silver, and bronze of their society where people would only become eligible to be leaders after they had a certain number of years experience in various things, including the salt mines, by the way, (laughs) they had to know what average people went through. And so I don't know. I mean, it sounds to me like one of our troubles is we're led by a person who has essentially no real world experience in things like diplomacy or planning for long term things for big organizations. Yeah, okay. I mean, should should there be some standard, you know, that you have to be 50, let's say, and you have to have done certain things before you can run for prime minister? <laughs> uh, well, there, there's again, there's no magic answer. There's no perfect solution or formula. Um, I, I will say this though: the the bad news is everybody wants to blame Justin Trudeau, yeah. and I'm going okay. It's not Trudeau's a problem, but it's so much of what we're experiencing is it's become hard baked into the elites of our society, into the public service, into the corporate boardrooms, um, uh, etc. And, and you know, we could talk about you have to have a minimum ed- education. Let's say you have to have a university degree to run for parliament, okay? But look at what they're what what's happening in our in our school system. Mm-hmm. You know, I it's probably worthwhile talking for a couple of minutes, Tom, about possible solutions, okay? Well, yeah. I don't I don't actually have solutions, but there are things that I know that I think we have to do if we're going to move towards finding solutions. And the top priority for me is somehow or other we have to break in this country the iron grip that the state has over education. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is we do not have diversity in education. We do not have different approaches that are being taught, uh, etc. We we don't. There's no such thing really as a private university in Canada. 
um, post secondary education, not post secondary education, but secondary high schools, completely controlled by the state. Yes, you have private schools, but to get your diploma, you have to follow certain guidelines uh, to get to. Um, uh, you can't get you can't grant a degree without government approval of the programs, even in a private university. It's it's, and so there's this. The, this this enforced uniformity of thought, um, and and somehow or other we have to break that mold. We have to allow other ways of thinking to be nurtured, to be cultivated, to grow, so that people actually have alternatives. That's the number. In my view, that is the number one problem. If we're not allowed to explore alternative viewpoints, um, uh, then we're doomed. Mm, um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and that means more conservative viewpoints it's because there's, there's no end to the left wing woke Ugh. availability of woke <laughs> yeah. classes that, and, and utterly nonsensical classes and, and mm-hmm. degrees and, and programs of education. It, it's the, the the I cannot stress more strongly the magnitude of the problem and the fact that we will never get over this. We will never, never find solutions in this country unless we break that that control over our education system. To me, mm-hmm. that's the top priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. But but back to my idea of having a Canadianization class. For people who come from radically different cultures, what do you think of that? Well, listen, it's better. It would be better, but I would my first response to it has to be: if you have to re-educate people, if you have to educate people once they get here into what it means to be Canadian, what is the basis for you allowing them to come to Canada in the first place? Yeah, I guess what it boils down to is they're putting a higher priority on the safety and security and welfare of this person who's perhaps suffering from prejudice in the other country than they are in the status of our culture and whether it's good for us. Well, look, there is another problem with immigration we haven't talked about, and that is this. Um, We in the West are blessed with a society, all the problems we have notwithstanding, that has evolved naturally, organically, if you will, from all of the contributions that have been made by the people who were in that society over hundreds of years. Right. I'm actually not a big fan of going to other societies, other countries, and poaching people. If, if, if people, if, what, what other societies need is they need the best and the brightest. They need the people who don't agree with what's going on there. Mm. Stay there and to, to build a critical mass that's going to promote change. And, huh. and I think that this is, this is, I, this is, not our our idea of we want the best of the brightest to come to Canada. I understand the motivation in that, but there are again consequences, and the consequences are that we're poaching the very people from societies that are struggling 
to yeah. modernize, to, to, to grow, to evolve. We take the people that would be the leaders in those societies and we say, we want you over here. Oh yeah. And we bring them over and we, and, and as a consequence of that, we deny the contribution that those people would make in their societies to the people who are left behind that we don't want. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, well, so that, it's, that's it's really complicated. It's, it's, it's yeah. not an easy. So well, that's really, that's really interesting because when I was at Carleton university doing engineering studies, we had a fair number of Tanzanian students from Tanzania. And it was interesting because some of them didn't want to go back, but they right. had to because they had a contract and they were actually in the military and they had to go back. And because their government recognized that they wanted their best and brightest in their countries. So, so it sounds to me like these countries should not welcome the export of their top people. <laughs> and, and, and of course that itself raises the question, are you going to prevent people from leaving your country as they mm -hmm. used to do in the old Soviet union, for instance, yeah, Germany. That was the whole mm -hmm. point of the Berlin Wall, wasn't it? Yeah. Thomas Sowell pointed out, and I think they're, they're very wise, very wise observation, and that is ultimately there are no solutions. Mm -hmm. There are only trade-offs. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, talking about trade-offs, one of my sisters used to work for Status of Women Canada, and I asked her, when you talk about government priorities, you know, the hierarchy of what's most important and what has the most influence, which takes precedence in the Canadian government? Is it multiculturalism or is it feminism? And she said multiculturalism. Now, the, the thing then you, bring, you, you would wonder is why are feminists not jumping up and down saying, look, if you're bringing in people from these cultures who don't treat women as equals, either A, don't bring them in, or B, you have to explain to them they must leave their culture in that sense behind. So, I mean... Do you see that, that multiculturalism is trumping a lot of basic Canadian values? Uh, I, I do. I do. But again, I, I think it's important to remember that it's it's not, while I don't agree with the government policy of multiculturalism, um, I think it's important to, 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 to understand that what we see going on right now um, is not just or even mainly because of a government policy of multiculturalism. It's simply the natural, perfectly understandable impact of bringing in large numbers of people into the country who simply have a different culture and a different set of values. Mm -hmm. um, and, and even if you didn't have a policy of multiculturalism, the impact would be the same, Tom. And again, I stress this there, there it's because I hear from people that I've spoken with over the years in government, in the immigration field, uh, who, when I raise the, the issue, the alarm red flag, so to speak, and they will say to me, listen, first generation problem, second generation, they always assimilate third generation. They're fully Canadian. That's not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't happen that way anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, just ask yourself, how is it that when tensions started to rise in the Middle East, we had odd, right away the government of Canada talking about 
sending planes over to fly Canadian citizens out of Lebanon into Canada. How many people do we have traveling and spending six, seven, eight months of the year in India, Canadian citizens? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. This is. I'm not throwing stones at anyone culturally or ethnically here. I just. It's a fact. The fact is, you you become a Canadian citizen, and then you live half of your life in the country you fled. Yeah, exactly. You know, Joseph, one thing that we actually sent a letter, my sister sent a letter to the Minister of Immigration, Citizenship and Immigration, at the time when she had the interaction with the people who ran the mosque. We asked, has there been any example in history where multiculturalism was practiced the way we're doing it in Canada and it was successful? And they admitted no. There hadn't been any example in history, They, but they were doing it right the first time. So, I mean, do you know of any example where they had multiculturalism like we do now in Canada and the United States, and it was successful? Is there any example to follow? No, not, I'm not aware of any. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, and I, I could tell you, look at Yugoslavia. Look at, look at, look at, look at the states today that are multicultural mm-hmm. they all have internal conflict uh they it's it's not and, and and people go well look at the united kingdom the united kingdom is not multicultural it's becoming multicultural but but you know the fact that you have scotland and wales and england and, and ireland or northern ireland anyway um these political entities were created or evolved they developed in an era of pretty much cultural unity conformity mm-hmm. if you will well that's what um, a country is generally speaking or at least it used to be well if if you don't here's the thing okay bottom line is this bottom line okay to illustrate the point if you don't believe in freedom if you don't believe in in equality okay then you don't believe in Canada. Mm-hmm. So if you move to Canada, but you hold on to these ideas of of, uh, of uh, men and women are not equal, uh, or Jews are inferior, or anything like that, that is, you know, at the risk of being inflammatory, un-Canadian. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that as a as a pejorative. I mean that as a very practical observation. Mm-hmm. You you are if you are talking this way in your mosque, or in fairness in your synagogue. Although I, I haven't ever seen it in a synagogue, but I've seen it in mosques. Um, uh, you know, if you're talking about uh, how we have to convert the world to Judaism or to Muslim to to Islam or whatever, that's just not Canadian. Mm-hmm. You yeah, are working. Point. You are working, undermining the foundations of this country and mm-hmm. i'm sorry if, if that offends people well so be it okay i don't i'm not trying to offend anyone i'm just saying that there are practical realities and if we don't if you stick your head into the sand well it's just not a very dignified position to be in <laughs> well well that's what we've done in canada we have stuck our head in the sand and you know it uh, sort of strikes me that Surely this kind of discussion that we're having right now should be happening at the national level, because if you don't have any common standards on anything, 
do you really even have a country? I mean, should we be opening up a national discussion about culture, about the country, about the meaning of Canada, about multiculturalism, whether it has any chance of working and whether we want it when you consider the variations in basic principles that people have around the world? We should be having this discussion. Um, uh, and uh, the fact that we the fact that we have to have the discussion itself is 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 a very big problem because it it's the idea of having that discussion is predicated on the idea that we no longer have that cultural consensus. And so can you recover that cultural consensus? Uh, that's a bigger question. Probably we don't have enough time today yeah. to go into it. Yeah, we... it's, it's a serious it's a serious question. Here again, have we reached a tipping point? Have we gone beyond the tipping point? I don't know, Tom. I do not, I am not, I'm not saying one way or the other, which itself is an indication of how serious I take this. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We only have a couple of minutes to go, but can we take a step back <laughs> and say, when looking at the Israel-Hamas situation, Sure. What do you think is the answer? I don't know if you can sum that up in two minutes, but what would you do if you were the head of Israel right now? Would you go back to bombing and stuff, or would you pull off and look, see what happens? Look, it, 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 we can do this in two minutes. It's actually, Ronald Reagan used to say the solutions are simple. They're just not easy. Uh. The, solution, the solution to Gaza is very simple as well. Um, uh, the, the government, if I want to use that term, the governing authority today in Gaza or has been anyway, Hamas. Uh, and and Hamas is controlled by a, a particularly vile ideology. Um, are all Palestinian Arabs uh, uh, in agreement with that ideology? Well, the fact is, no, they're not. And uh, and if all you have to do is spend time in Israel talking to Arabs in Israel, um, and uh, you're going to run into Arabs in Israel who are don't like the Israeli government, don't like Jews, but by and large... Israeli Arabs have no desire to live under a Hamas government or a Palestinian government or anything like that. There are people who get it. There are people, Arabs, Muslims, who understand the idea of modernity, the idea of, 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 of democracy, etc. You, you have to eliminate Hamas. Whether that's by destroying them or by accepting their unconditional surrender, off you go, you guys can move to Uganda, okay? Or yeah. Madagascar or whatever. No offense intended toward my friends in Uganda or Madagascar, okay? You can take them, <laughs> don't take them. We need to get rid of Hamas as the governing authority. And then there has to be a period of occupation of that territory, rebuilding, uh, but not just rebuilding physically, but rebuilding politically, educationally, etc. And I could see something like that happening for five to ten years, like what we did in Nazi Germany after the war. You have to de-Hamas, Hamasicize mm -hmm. that territory. You have to control the education system. You have to control the media. You have to extirpate all vestiges of, of Hamas ideology, etc., and then slowly integrate people into positions of authority that actually are going to be better 
for for that particular society. And eventually, there is no reason. I've written about this. There is no reason why Gaza can't become like a Liechtenstein or an Andorra or a Monaco, if I want to use three examples of successful, prosperous European microstates. They don't mm -hmm. have to have a big military. They don't have to have a lot of territory, and and they could be sovereign, a sovereign country. There's no reason why that can't happen. The only impediment to that happening is Hamas and other like-minded groups. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and uh, when I say like-minded groups, I'm counting Fatah and the Palestinian Authority on that as well. Mm -hmm. You need to have a clean break from everything that's going on governing the Palestinians, self-government, etc., and run the show for a period of time. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I'm not sure that the Israelis are the right people to do it. I wish, I wish that the international community would step up and take that responsibility on. Yeah. I'm skeptical, but if you're looking for a solution, I don't see an alternative to that. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And <laughs> so much more to talk to you about, but we're out of time. So my guest today has been Joseph Benemy, former director of government relations and diplomatic affairs for the Jewish Advocacy Group, B'nai B'rith. So thanks so much, Joseph, for being on my show again. <laughs> Anytime, Tom. Yeah. So this is Tom Harris and my guest, Joseph Benemy, signing out from the other side of the story. <laughs>